Health 101 is produced by the physicians of the Metro Omaha Medical Society, and we'd like to thank Children's Hospital and Medical Center for their support of this podcast. Okay, everyone, it's time for Health 101, and we are talking about allergies today. And not just food allergies, skin allergies, environmental allergies. We're going to try to cover the whole gamut because it is what everyone is talking about. And I don't actually remember a time when we weren't so uber aware of allergies and what they're doing to everyone. And they're causing wholesale changes in how even businesses operate, schools operate. And so Jill Hansen, who is an allergist, immunologist, all things knowledgeable, coming to talk to us about this. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Carol. I'm excited to be here and happy to answer any questions. Obviously, one of my favorite things to talk about. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, is it just anecdotal or does everyone now have a food allergy or an environmental <laughs> allergy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a combination of both. Certainly, we're more aware of it. I think we're much more um, in tune with food allergy, especially. Um, but there definitely is an increase in prevalence or number of people that have allergies. That's absolutely true. Um, we're probably better at diagnosing it than we used to be, but uh, we also are seeing a true increase in the number of kids um, and adults, actually, with food allergies and allergies to things in the environment. Is it something we've done that makes it more common? I- And I take peanut allergies because Mm -hmm. I think that's the one that wholesale has become a huge issue. Schools, you can't bring home-baked goods anymore because of fears. Every label you see for anything says this was made in a factory that also makes soy nuts and something else. Exactly. Um, And I'm not really sure that I realized that there were that many people who had deadly Mm -hmm. allergic reactions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has definitely increased. And there's a couple theories about that. So so one really important area that we've learned about is when we introduce foods to babies, that that actually is probably a strong predictor of food allergy. So in the past, we used to think that delaying introduction of foods like peanut or egg or soy or milk um, to later in life, sometimes even into preschool and school-aged uh, kiddos, was beneficial, that that would actually prevent food allergies from developing. But now over the last 10, even 20 years, we actually know the opposite is true. And so actually introducing uh, foods, allergenic foods specifically, like egg and milk and soy and peanut, um, into the diet of kids in the first year of life actually prevents food allergy or reduces the risk of food allergy. And so talk about completely reversing (laughs) um, the recommendations that we're making to families as far as uh, introducing foods goes. But um, the evidence really is very supportive of the fact that there's something really important about that first year of life, that kids who are introduced to those foods early on are more likely to become tolerant and kids who delay introduction are more likely to become allergic. And so we probably now in hindsight know that some of those infant feeding recommendations may have led to the increase in food allergy. So that's one good thing about medicine is we're always learning, we're always uh, changing, always studying things, but we do sometimes find that, you know, things that we were recommending in the past maybe weren't um, weren't actually the way to go. So that's one of the theories is that um, we just really need to encourage early introduction of these foods to reduce the risk of food allergy. Is it much <clears throat> like vaccines, like creating an immune Mm -hmm. therapy system for your body? Is that really what we're doing with introducing these foods and really with allergy treatments? Right, exactly. So kind of early on, the immune system, especially in that first year of life, is kind of learning 
what's harmful, what's safe, what do I need to be concerned about, what do I not need to be concerned about. And so if we're depriving the immune system of that chance to be exposed to something that's not harmful and learn, hey, this is okay, I don't need to cause an allergic reaction to this peanut or this egg or even this cat dander or grass pollen, um, that that's actually, they're much more likely to develop more of a tolerance um, than if those things are introduced for the first time later on. So then let's move to the adult section for a second, because I hear so many people now say, well, I have a gluten sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And I wonder the difference between a sensitivity and an allergic reaction, mm-hmm. or are they really just one and the same? Mm-hmm. No, they're actually really different. And the distinction is really important. So <clears throat> with food allergy, when we're talking about allergy specifically, we know that that is a very specific type of reaction triggered by the immune system. Um, and it's caused by something called IgE, which is an antibody in the immune system. Its job is supposed to help fight off infections, but with allergies, it starts to recognize things that are harmless, things that it shouldn't care about at all. Uh, so foods, for example. Um, when the food is uh, introduced to that person who is allergic, that IgE is going to trigger what we call an allergic reaction, meaning that a chemical called histamine and some other chemicals get released, and that can lead to what we call symptoms of allergies, which would be like hives and swelling, coughing, wheezing, shortness of breath, vomiting, um, dizziness, lightheadedness, passing out even. Um, Yes, so it can be pretty significant reactions. Um, And that's all mediated by that IgE. So that is truly an allergy. Now, sensitivities and intolerances are a little bit different. So they actually don't involve IgE. So the mechanism or uh, kind of the background of what's happening in the body is a little bit different. Um, And probably the best example of that is like a milk allergy versus what we call lactose intolerance. So with milk allergy, the milk is triggering release of um, those chemicals and resulting in that allergy reaction, whereas something called lactose intolerance is more of uh, the intestines not being able to handle certain types of sugar that's found in milk. And so that can result in things like uh, stomach aches, diarrhea, vomiting, gas. Um, And so that would be more of a sensitivity type reaction. Certainly gluten sensitivity is also really common. That's, um, again, more of an intestinal kind of reaction. But some people even notice things like headaches and fatigue. Um, So not a true allergy per se, but still causes a lot of bothersome symptoms. Um, And I think really the reason it's important to distinguish between the two is that a true allergy is potentially life-threatening. And so those patients really have to avoid the food. Um, They have to have an epinephrine auto-injector or an EpiPen, kind of have to be prepared at any time for a potentially dangerous reaction, whereas the intolerances and the sensitivities uh, are not dangerous. They're certainly very bothersome and uncomfortable, and ultimately you might still end up avoiding the food, but it's not quite um, quite as serious of a reaction, I guess you would say. Why is it that our food, and maybe it's a obvious question, why is it that our food creates such a strong, almost life-endangering, whereas, you know, I'm allergic to pollen in this mm-hmm. weather right now, you know, and the spring and the fall and, you know, everyone's puffy. Mm-hmm. 
but I'm not carrying an epinephrine pen right. for it. Yeah. Yeah. So the environmental allergies are a little bit different. The same sort of mechanism is happening, but with um, environmental allergies like pollen and mold, you know, dogs, cats, dust mites, all that sort of stuff, that triggers more of what we call a localized reaction. So you get exposed to those things, um, you inhale them through the nose, or they come into contact with your eyes, and that causes symptoms in your eyes itchy, red, watery eyes, uh, symptoms in the nose, sneezing, congestion, you know, drainage down the throat, all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of localized or just specific to the area that the, the allergen comes into contact with. Whereas with food allergy, because it's digested and processed, it actually ends up in the bloodstream. And so that's why you get more of a full body response that can be dangerous. Um, there are some cases of people with environmental allergies having more dangerous reactions, but it's very, very unusual. So typically it's only the food allergies that we worry about um, needing an epinephrine auto-injector um, and having to be as cautious about avoidance. And we have to veer off slightly because people have been talking about EpiPens. It is the mm -hmm. big discussion in a lot of places because the cost mm -hmm, has skyrocketed definitely. on some of them. And there's all this discussion about who should be able to administer. Mm -hmm. If you have a child who's allergic, should the EpiPen live with the child at school or should it be at the school nurse? Mm -hmm. What are you telling families mm -hmm. about managing some of that? Because it's a bit cumbersome. It is for sure. And I think the cost definitely has been a big problem. There was about this time last year, there was a lot of um, stuff out in the media, you know, many people probably saw with uh, the price of EpiPens essentially, you know, going up to six, $700 per per kit, which comes with two devices actually. Um, but ideally those two devices should be kept together. So the kit really should be kept together because some patients do actually need a second dose of that. And oh. so what we were seeing is families were splitting them up, rightfully so, because they spent four or $500 on this and didn't want to have to buy a second kit. But in an ideal world, every child with a food allergy um, should have access to their EpiPen or their OBIQ. There's a couple different devices now, but at home and at school. Um, a lot of the younger kiddos, you know, the parents will carry it for them, like mom's purse or the diaper bag, that kind of thing. As kids get older, um, a lot of times, depends a little on the kid, but generally when they get to that middle school age, we'll kind of start to talk about maybe the child carrying that themselves. Um, or carrying it around in their sports bag or their backpack, things like that. Um, certainly with preschool, elementary age kids, it is probably best to have the, the nurse uh, keep that at the school. Um, although some schools don't necessarily have a school nurse's office, and so sometimes that's kept in the main office, but essentially you know, kind of monitored and regulated by an adult of some sort. Um, but when kids get into middle school, high school, we do absolutely allow them to um, carry that EpiPen or that AviQ device around with them at school, um, either in their pocket or in their backpack, that sort of thing. So the key is just that it's that they have the access to it and uh, that everyone is aware of where that is. And so if that child were to have a reaction, the epinephrine can be given quickly. How quick are we talking that we need to be able to give an EpiPen or some sort mm -hmm. of relief? Because 
you know, I've heard that the symptoms, depending on severity, can be really rapid. Mm -hmm. They can. Yeah. And it just depends on the person. It depends on how sensitive they are, um, how much they ingested. So there's a lot of different factors that play in. Um, But essentially in our uh, clinic, we really try to educate the families on when they need to use that epinephrine. So the important thing really about it is never hesitate. If you're on the fence, just use it. There's really no downsides to using an epinephrine. Um, injector. Um, it might cause a rapid heart rate for a little bit, but that's transient, temporary. It's not going to cause any long-term harm to the heart or anything like that. And so we always say, you know, if you're ever on the fence, just go ahead and use it. Um, but there are times when maybe the reaction is mild and you may not necessarily have to use it. And so if you're seeing what we would consider mild symptoms, which might be just like a couple of hives or a little bit of an itchy mouth or a runny nose, those would be considered you know, appropriate to use something like Benadryl and then monitor really closely. Uh, But at any point, if those are progressing um, or if you're starting to see multiple things at one time, so now all of a sudden they have a few hives, but they also are, you know, sneezing repeatedly and have a runny nose, the epinephrine really should be used in that situation. Um, And then of course, with any severe symptoms like coughing, wheezing, difficulty breathing, vomiting, um, feeling dizzy, lightheaded, or just not feeling like something's not right. I mean, that's another feeling that kids will sometimes describe is like, I just don't feel quite right. That that can actually be a significant symptom. And so using that epinephrine um, really as quickly as possible. Um, there are studies that show that delaying administration of the epinephrine can result in more significant reactions. And certainly in cases where um, patients have unfortunately passed away from their dangerous reaction, a lot of times that was correlated with delay in use of their epinephrine. And so the earlier, the better. Um, I think as soon as you recognize that those more significant symptoms are present, um, you know, within minutes, if we can. So um, definitely the faster, the better. Thank you so much to Children's Hospital and Medical Center for supporting this podcast. This podcast is generously supported by Children's Hospital and Medical Center. Children's is the only full-service pediatric health center in Nebraska, providing expertise in more than 50 pediatric specialty services to children across the region and beyond. It is home to Nebraska's only Level 4 newborn intensive care unit and the only Level 2 pediatric trauma center. Nationally, Children's is recognized as a best children's hospital by U.S. News & World Report. To meet the growing demand for high-quality pediatric services, Children's is growing to better serve more children and families. Its new clinical facility, the Hubbard Center for Children, opens in 2021. Learn more at childrensomaha.org. So then why are we as adults also susceptible to gaining something that we may never have been allergic to growing up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. So most allergies do start in childhood. I mean, that's definitely the norm. But with certain types of foods, um, specifically shellfish and fish, some of the nut allergy can start later in life, um, either in the teenage years or or beyond. Um, with environmental allergies, really, we see that across the board anytime. Really, that's really people unfair. can develop that. <laughs> <laughs> so you might think, "Hey, I'm in the clear. You know, I have no problems at all." But I mean, I myself, I didn't develop any allergy symptoms till like I was in my early 30s and all of a sudden started having allergies. So um, it's kind of interesting too. But um, we just, we don't fully understand why adults maybe are more uh, likely to develop them. Some adults do, some adults don't, but probably has to do with some of the environmental factors around. I mean, we know that um, 
As far as the environmental allergies go, we know that things like pollution um, and air quality can affect how allergenic the pollen is. And so people maybe who have never had a problem now all of a sudden are developing allergies for that reason. We know that with um, climate change, certainly our pollen seasons are becoming longer and more severe, which a lot of people are starting to notice. And so um, adults of any age uh, really can develop uh, symptoms at any time. When people talk about allergies and they're trying to help, and I think kids specifically, um, they do the immunotherapy to try to give them the best shot of building some sort of resistance Mm -hmm. or acceptance of it. Mm -hmm. Does it work? Yeah. So we have to talk about it in kind of two different categories um, because there is immunotherapy available for environmental allergies, which has been around for gosh, over a hundred years. Um, and then there's also immunotherapy for foods and they are a little bit different. So when we're talking about the environmental allergies, that's allergy shots, typically what we're talking about. Um, there are some tablets available as well, but what we're doing there is, is essentially giving the person what they are allergic to, trying to build up their immunity to it, or trying to kind of trick their immune system into not recognizing that allergen, um, as being something harmful that the body needs to react to. Um, it is a long process. So it can take, you know, a good six to nine months to really try to build up that immunity. And then it has to be maintained over the course of three to five years or so. Um, but it is dramatically effective. I mean, there are a lot of studies, um, behind immunotherapy or allergy shots for uh, environmental allergies. We see kind of on average probably an 80% reduction in symptoms of allergies, 80% reduction even in how much medication people need. Um, So it is a great option, especially for people who are taking a lot of medicine, not getting relief. Um, And these things like pollen and mold, I mean, they're hard to avoid. Um, You know, pets, you know, if people decide, gosh, you know, I don't want to get rid of our family dog we've had forever and ever, um, allergy shots can be really good option for that. Uh, Now with the foods, it's a little bit more controversial, I will say. Um, Certainly some really good evidence that food desensitization or food immunotherapy or microdosing is kind of another name for it, that that giving kids who are allergic small amounts of the food they're allergic to kind of in the same concept for the environmental allergies might be build up their tolerance or decrease their allergy. Um, And there's actually a lot of debate going on within the allergy field on this topic right now. There are um, certainly studies out there that have shown that it is effective, uh, that it is safe, um, but there still are a lot of concerns about, you know, what are the long-term effects? Does this truly cure the food allergy or is it sort of a temporary uh, temporary status? Is it uh, it safe? Because those studies do show that a lot of the kids who are in those programs do have more anaphylaxis or serious allergic reactions. And so we just, there's there's a lot of information out there, but we still have a lot to learn. Um, and there are a lot of allergy practitioners using it and having great results, even here in Omaha. Um, we have some providers that are, that are using that therapy and patients are doing very well. And so certainly something we need to continue to look at because it may potentially be a cure for food allergies. We just, we just don't know a hundred percent. So... And it sounds like we also don't know if it can't come back. Exactly. Yeah. I think really the studies have shown very well that while the patients are on the treatment protocol, while they are ingesting every single day a little bit of their allergen, that it does protect them from uh, an accidental exposure and a dangerous reaction. But the question is, what if they were to stop doing that? Um, Would the effect be sustained? And that's kind of where we don't necessarily have 
um, as robust of information or data to say that, yes, that is permanently a cure because the, the allergy could potentially come back. Um, and we know that, again, there's some issues with anaphylactic reactions in kids who are doing those treatments. And so we're still kind of trying to work out what's the right dose, how often should it be given. Um, and there are some clinical trials going on. Um, the FDA, you know, we're hoping at least maybe later this year, early next year, we might have some results from some of the bigger um, FDA studies. So is the gold standard of diagnosing allergies still the skin test? Mm -hmm. For the most part. Yeah, for the most part. So again, we kind of have to separate the environmental mm -hmm. allergies from the food allergies, but um, the scratch testing definitely is very, uh, very effective at identifying uh, triggers of environmental allergies. Uh, so cats and dogs and dust mites, cockroaches, feathers, tree pollen, grass pollen, weed pollen, mold. I know you're making a face about the cockroaches. <laughs> I see that a lot. Oh. Um, yes, many people are actually allergic to cockroaches. Um, so, so skin testing definitely is very beneficial and helpful for identifying those types of triggers. Um, usually if the test is positive and the patient is having symptoms that would kind of correlate with uh, that exposure, then we can be very confident that they are allergic. Uh, the food testing gets a little bit more complicated. There's a lot of false positive tests uh, with the food allergy um, evaluation, both with the scratch tests on the skin and also on the blood test. So just really important that <clears throat> patients with food allergies are seeing a provider who kind of knows how to interpret those results and make sure that we're not uh, running the risk of false positive results. So, And how young can you bring a child mm -hmm. to get a food allergy test? Because I feel like I hear mothers talk about their two and three-year-olds showing symptoms, and I think, well, they can't necessarily verbalize to mm -hmm. you that they feel sure. their throat swelling up. And mm -hmm. so how do you determine? Yeah, when to test them. Yeah. Um, so with food allergies, um, especially with some of these newer recommendations about introdu introducing foods early on, I mean, I personally have had success uh, skin testing kids as young as four and five months of age. Oh, wow. Um, as long as, you know, we get a good response from their skin. And there are some ways we can tell if the skin is going to respond um, enough to where we can interpret the results. Um, so as far as the foods go, really no, no limit as far as age goes. Um, and then with the environmental allergies, you, you theoretically can skin test them at any time, but it is a lot less common for young kids to develop what we call seasonal allergies mostly mold and pollen, um, only because we think that you have to be exposed to multiple seasons of that allergy. So for example, tree pollen is usually a problem in the springtime. So a child would have to live through, you know, maybe three to four spring seasons before they would develop the allergy. And so you can, you can certainly test them before that time, but they're probably a lot less likely to actually have seasonal allergies until they're maybe three to four years old. Um, things like dogs or cats, if they're in the home and they're constantly exposed, they could certainly develop the allergy much sooner. We have EpiPens for food allergies, mm -hmm. and I feel like most allergies are over-the-counter for environmental. Mm -hmm. Is there no course of treatment better than that? Or is that the goal? Is that really the most accepted way to treat it just locally, uh, Sudafed, mm -hmm. uh, 
Benadryl. With the over-the-counter yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's interesting and kind of frustrating for allergists because, you know, a lot of those medications have gone over-the-counter, which ultimately means a lot of insurance companies don't pay for them, which is, I think, frustrating for, for us as providers, but also for patients because um, it's a legitimate medical condition. They're legitimate medications. But um, certainly things like the nasal steroid sprays, um, the oral antihistamines, which would be like your Claritin, Zyrtec, Allegra, Benadryl, um, those are mostly over-the-counter at this point. And I think most patients that we see have kind of experimented around and tried some of those things before they even come in to see us. Um, we do still have some other options on top of those medicines. Um, so there are um, some prescription strength nasal sprays that can be used if patients haven't responded to the over-the-counter uh, treatments. There's also some um, tablets, things like Singular Montelukast is the other name for that that we'll sometimes add that is a prescription only. Um, and then some of the eye drops are prescription only. So there are still some options um, that would require a prescription essentially. But I think even in the patients that are using the over-the-counter medications, they don't give you a whole lot of direction on those packages about how to take them or when to take them or how long to take them. So I think even people using over-the-counter medications a lot of times benefit from talking to a provider just to make sure they're actually taking everything like they should, that there's not interactions between things that they're taking. Because um, a lot of times we kind of tailor it to the specific person and especially what they're allergic to. That's why the skin testing can be so helpful because if we can identify what it is that's triggering your symptoms, we can give you some guidance on Maybe you only need to take this certain times of year. Maybe you need to take it all year long. Um, and, of course, reviewing side effects and things like that, how to appropriately take a nasal spray, all those sorts of things are important. So I think still still good to see a provider, even if you are using the over-the-counter medicines, because a lot of times we can tweak things and, and get people feeling better. Do we know any causal or correlative data that seems to say that if you are prone to allergies, that you have a weaker immune system, because it almost seems that it means that your immune system is more sensitive, um, or are there long-term health problems to mm -hmm. untreated allergies, besides obviously anaphylactic shock and, mm -hmm. and the risk of death, but living with kind of untreated mm -hmm. allergies? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So we know um, certainly that allergies, so environmental allergies specifically, um, they're miserable. So, yes. um, you know, if you're not treating those allergies, um, you know, dealing with chronic kind of ongoing nasal congestion and drainage and itchy red watery eyes. I mean, it definitely impacts quality of life. We know that for sure. Um, the number of missed school days, missed work days, I mean, lost productivity. There's studies that show all of that. Um, some patients experience a lot of fatigue and just kind of feel ill when they are having an allergy flare, which is why we used to call it hay fever, because um, you do actually feel like you're sick sometimes. And so, um, you know, there's probably nothing harmful per se about allowing those symptoms to go on and on and on, you know, without treatment, but definitely impacts your quality of life. And so we hate to see patients suffering like that. Um, it is definitely a little bit more important if you've got a condition like asthma, um, which many patients with allergies do have asthma. And so that would be more of a kind of respiratory breathing, coughing, wheezing, shortness of breath type condition that we can really see long-term effects from not adequately treating uh, that condition. And allergies can be a really big trigger. Trigger, uh, for asthma. And so certainly with those patients, it is really important that we control their allergies in order to keep their asthma controlled. Um, so that would probably be one instance where 
it is a lot more important um, due to long-term complications, potentially, as if a patient has asthma. When should someone start seeing a doctor or think about, I may be developing something. Mm -hmm. Something's not quite right. Mm -hmm. I seem to be having more problems whenever I eat this, be exposed to this. At what point should you be making an appointment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, honestly, right away. Um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with trying some over-the-counter type stuff first, but I think patients will see relief a lot sooner and kind of get to the bottom of what's going on if they if they do reach out to a provider. And that can certainly be your primary care doctor. It doesn't necessarily have to be an allergist. I think the primary care offices are a great place to start and just say, hey, here's what's going on. Um, they probably will have some suggestions as far as medications that can be used up front. Or, you know, sometimes if it's food related, they'll recommend keeping a food diary just to try to track um, the symptoms that you're having and try to pick out specific foods. And then they absolutely are, you know, comfortable for the most part with handling some of those initial sorts of issues. But if you're not getting things controlled or if there's concern about a dangerous food allergy, that would be a really good time then to see an allergist. Um, I mean, we are essentially the only ones that do that skin testing, um, which does help get a an accurate diagnosis. And then we just, this is all we do all day long. And so we are pretty well versed in all the medications and what might work best for any particular patient. So I think I always hate to hear about people suffering from symptoms when we know that we can control them much better. So I would, I would just encourage people to seek help, you know, as soon as they start to notice problems just to get the best uh, potential control. Oh my gosh. And there's no like teaspoon of raw honey that will make this go away, right? (laughs) Sadly, no. I mean, that, that, that is kind of a craze right now is yes. the local honey. Um, it's it's pretty ineffective when you look at studies. So the idea is that, you know, the, the honey is produced by bees. The bees pick up pollen as they, you know, swim or swim, fly <laughs> around. Um, and then the pollen theoretically would be in the honey. But it's such microscopic, tiny amounts that it's really never been shown to be enough to actually desensitize your body like an allergy shot would. So probably more of a what we call placebo effect. But if if people find it's beneficial, there's certainly no harm um, in doing that, but probably not stellar results that we would expect. Alas, no quick cure. (laughs) (laughs) Jill, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and giving us all sorts of advice and thoughts because, you know, of how to identify what's coming down the pike and unfortunately giving us the bad news that we can develop all of this at any point in our lives that we're never immune. (laughs) That's right. But there is treatment. There is treatment. That's the important thing to remember. That's the good news. Well, thanks, Jill. And thank you guys for joining us today. A Parkville Media Production. The information shared in this podcast is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the presenters and do not represent the thoughts, advice, or opinions of the Metro Omaha Medical Society. The information contained in this podcast should not serve as the basis for any medical treatment and is not intended to be a substitute for actual medical advice. Before making changes to your health care plan or a loved one's, always consult with a health care professional.